traffic in the Black Hills. <laughs> no. By the way, good job, Riley, at State. That's great. You did a good job. So, uh, so we started the book of 1 John, and, and as I closed the sermon last week, I encouraged all of us to read the book of 1 John daily through this entire series. And you have a choice. You can either try to read one. There's only five chapters, and you could read them in sequence and just kind of come back and loop through. That would be a really quick read, but if you actually read all five chapters per day, then you're going to get a gold star from somebody. I don't know. You'll be blessed anyway. Uh, and I, I estimated somewhere between, if you're a really, really fast reader, maybe 10 or 12 minutes, and if you're a really methodical reader, you'll be maybe 30 minutes. You're probably somewhere in between. So it's a commitment of time a little bit. Uh, and hopefully you're already in the Word, and maybe this would be an addition to add at lunchtime or in the evening or something. But I do believe you'll be blessed by doing it. And one of the things that I said as well is that as you do something like that, especially for a short book like First John, if you just read it over and over, without even trying, you'll end up having memorized quite a bit of it. So the message is titled this morning, Disinfecting Light. Disinfecting Light. So you've heard the phrase, we've even probably used it, most of us ourselves, sunlight is the best disinfectant, Right? And it, sometimes we say that about government or politics. And what we mean by that is that, well, if, if the people can see what's going on and the records aren't hidden, then sunlight will, will allow uh, things to go well. We, there's accountability. If someone knows they're accountable and that everybody can look into what they're doing, then they're more likely to do the right thing. And that's part of the reason we have something called the Freedom of Information Act, Right? The FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, and there's, there's actually entire organizations like Judicial Watch that they always are, they're putting in FOIA requests. We want to know what's going on in the Department of Defense, or we want to know what's, where, what this is doing over here. And, uh, and so that's one of the ways we say sunlight is the best disinfectant. And uh, we have had also in many of our men's ministries over the years, accountability groups small groups of men that, uh, that share together in life and meet together regularly to look each other in the eyes across a table or something to, uh, to be challenged and to be encouraged. Um, and when men know that they will face brothers in Christ and be encouraged and also challenged about how they are doing in their thought life or in their honesty at work or the integrity in their marriage, well, they will tell you, most of them, that just knowing that they're responsible to other men helps them to make better decisions about life. And of course, sunlight, in a literal and scientific way, it's a fact that it is a powerful disinfectant. Many germs, viruses, and bacteria are easily killed by a high dose of highly potent UV light from the sun. Now, in the Christian life, John tells us we ought to walk in the light. God is light, and when we stand under the disinfecting power of his light through his word and through his spirit, our sins are brought out into the light. The big idea this morning is that confession means to agree with God about sin. Confession means to agree with God about sin. And I'm going to focus in these few verses 
on three uh, things about the light. It's the light of truth, the light of fellowship, and the light of cleansing. The light of truth, the light of fellowship, and the light of cleansing. So I'm going to read John 1 and into verse 2-2. This is one of those places in Scripture where I don't agree with the breaks in the chapters. Um, you know, we know that the verses and chapters were added uh, a long time later after they were written. And sometimes uh, a thought is broken up by a chapter break and then people think that it doesn't go with that or something. And we want to we look at the thing completely. So I'm going to go through verse 22. So that said, let's take a look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Then the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So again, the big, big idea is confession means to agree with God about sin, and we're going to look at the light of truth and the light of fellowship and the light of cleansing. So first, the light of truth. In verse 5 there is where we're going to pick, off, pick up where we left off last week. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So let's consider this verse. John says, this is the message we have heard from him. Well, who does he mean by him? Well, what is one of my mantras about Bible study? Context is king, yes. And so our context in this letter of John, and when we go to verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning of that, we can find out who the he is. And if you heard last week's message, you'll remember that John is making clear that he and other witnesses heard, saw, and touched Jesus, who is referred to by John often as the Word, or the Word of Life, as we see in verse 1. Now remember that in part, John was testifying to the physical being of Jesus. They saw, heard, and touched him as a physical human being. And that was partly because there was a heresy at the time called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, that said that Jesus had not come in the flesh, which I, we went through last week. So if you want to hear that, that's online. 
I won't go through it all again here. So John makes sure his testimony is clear. We heard, we've seen, we looked upon and touched the word of life which is made manifest. So clearly he's referring to Jesus here. So now in verse 5 he's continuing and says, This is the message we heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you. So John is attributing what he is about to say to Jesus himself. This is Jesus' message, not John's. John's just reporting the news. And here's the news from Jesus. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we could easily gloss over some of the wording here, so I want to take a moment to make sure you understand. This doesn't say God is bright. It doesn't say he has some light. It doesn't say that he reflects the light. It says God is light. He is light, and the corollary to that is that there is no darkness in him at all. There are many God is statements in Scripture. I, my mom, I think, used to have a poster of all of them, uh, the names of God. Well, this is a good one to remember what God is. 1 John 1.5 is one of those verses that is good to put to memory. God is light. And John uses light many times. In his gospel, chapter 1, the light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. And John the Baptist bore witness about the light. In John chapter 1, verse 7, the true light was coming into the world. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, walk in the light while you still can. Light is here used as one of those contrasting metaphors, one of the most clear ones that most people can understand. And by the way, it's not only Christians that use this metaphor of light and dark, right? There's many other uh, religions out there that use something like that. Darkness usually means evil or wickedness, the dark side of the force, and so forth. But here, God is the light, and it's the light of truth. In verse 6, darkness is contrasted with truth. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, what does that mean? John is pointing out in a general sense that people who claim to be part of the fellowship of Jesus and his saints, but continue to live in a sinful manner as if no change had ever happened to them, they're liars. They don't practice the truth. Now we get on to the light of fellowship. What does this have to do with fellowship? We see that the light is applied to the fellowship of believers. That's the church. That's all who have true, saving, abiding faith in Jesus. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So how do we have fellowship with other believers? By being in the light. That is, in this context, we are not walking in habitual sin. But rather, we are people who walk in the light. That is, we have a clear conscience before God. And we will see in a moment more on that. Now, we can't really have a true and good Christian fellowship with people who are not walking in the light. It's an impossibility. And that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at 11, But now I'm writing to you, 
not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That, in other words, someone, as John said, who claims to have fellowship with Jesus. Paul says, don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Again, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, He is self-condemned. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Well, isn't this unloving, some might say. Well, aren't you Christians supposed to be forgiving people who put up with others? Well, let's not twist Scripture here, right? Yes, we're forgiving people. And yes, we're called in Scripture to bear with one another, especially those who are weak in the faith. But at the same time, when someone continues in sin, either willfully or at least unwilling to confess, they're like a cancer in the body. And there can't be true fellowship. And this is why the warnings are there again and again and again throughout Scripture. You can actually go back to the Old Testament, even to Moses. He wrote often about the concerns and the dangers of having uh, people in your community who are not following God's word. So the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is full of warnings about how we associate with certain people. Now, if you read through Proverbs, you'll find all kinds of stuff about this. It's unwise to be around boastful people or brawlers, angry men, it says, hot-tempered men, and so on. So why is it important to understand these things in the church? And why should we take care to make sure we deal with sin in the church? Because according to 1 John, and remember whose teaching John says this is, is actually the teaching of Jesus. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So if we read again, starting at verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is the cleansing light, to cleanse us all from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here we find some real encouragement to the believer, but also a very strong cautionary note that may even bring us some discomfort. Remember last week how I said John used very simple, yet clear and strong language, and here it is. There are some passages of Scripture that we could debate all day long, was it mean this or that? But John is very clear here. First, 
Don't lie to yourself or others and say we don't sin. John here is getting at uh, another heresy that's called antinomianism. You don't need to write that down. But it means lawlessness. In other words, people who said, you know what, I'm fine with Jesus and I can keep sinning. Uh, He loves me and he saved me, so it doesn't really matter what I do today. I'm good. I've got my card into heaven. And that heresy is still alive and well today, unfortunately, in many churches as well. Another side of the same coin are those who say that because they are in Christ, they never sin. Well, I got saved at age five and I haven't sinned since. But that's not possible. As John writes, not even for the believer. At least not yet, until the perfect comes. Oh, we look forward to that day. But all have sinned. There are none righteous. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. The atoning work of Christ for the believer covers our sins, past, present, and future. Yes, this is true. So John is not saying we should sin. He's not giving permission to just say, well, I can sin and confess, sin and confess, sin and confess, as though just like our clothes are worn and thrown into the wash and then we rinse and repeat, that we can just acknowledge the sin as part of us and then we just see that as part of our lives, like we see the laundry. No, he's, he's not leading us to any direction at all that accommodates an attitude of relaxation when it comes to personal holiness. He's simply acknowledging the fact that we, as believers who are saved by grace, and who have a blessed hope that someday we will be like Christ and be with Him, and that is in a sinless state of bliss, yet here and now we must live in this fallen world, and we must live with our body of death, as Paul called it. So we aren't supposed to sin. We certainly don't want to wink at sin, As I just got done saying, for one thing, we cannot have good fellowship when sin's in the way. But there's some very good news here in this deep challenge that John gives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And since I think the chapter break there is a bit unfortunate, and we see this line of teaching continued in 2.1, which makes it really clear that we are not supposed to take this as some kind of permission to sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this is excellent news. Well, what's an advocate? Well, think of an attorney or a lawyer. If you're in some kind of trouble with the law, you want to get a really good attorney, right? Sometimes the good ones are really expensive, but Jesus is your advocate for free. He offers the free gift of salvation. And why do we need this? Because sin not only breaks our fellowship with people, it breaks, first of all, our fellowship with God. And if you are human, you have sinned. According to Romans 3, 23 to 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sin 
separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 1-3, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear, for your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Sin breaks our relationship with God. Not only does it break our relationship with God, it puts us under God's wrath, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we need a Savior not only to save us from God's wrath, but to restore us in relationship with Him and to have peace with Him. Romans 5, 6-9, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to, even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so you must put full faith in the work of Jesus for salvation, Romans 10, 9 to 11, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And if you believed with a saving faith, according to Ephesians, then you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you then are one of the truths truly saved, then we look to what John is saying here in 1 John that although we're saved, we still sin. And if we say we don't, we make God a liar. But if we do sin, we have an advocate. Since Jesus has saved us, our salvation is secure. However, that doesn't give us license to sin. John said he wrote these things so you may not sin. Jesus said in John 15, 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word, the light, is our disinfectant. Now remember that big idea was that confession means to agree with God about sin. Let's talk about confession. You see, the word confess does not simply mean I admit it. Doesn't simply mean I admit it. Like getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar as a child and mom walks in and sees your hand in there and your hand is still in there and she says, are you taking a cookie? Well, the question's rhetorical at that point, right? She obviously sees what's going on and she knows you have no alibi and you know you have no alibi and you're caught in the act and so you say, yes. Is that a confession? Well, in the biblical sense, it may not be. Confession is not simply saying, I admit I did this. Confession, the word actually means to say something about something. In other words, it's saying that what you did was a sin. It's not praying well, if I've sinned, Lord, forgive me. Well, that's a nice blanket, easy way out, right? No, it's naming the sin. It's agreeing with God that it's sin. Confession means to agree with God 
about sin. Now, why does this even matter? Well, look at the world today. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so if you say to someone, you're doing something immoral, they might even admit it. Some people might even boast of it. But is that confession that they admitted it? Not in the biblical sense. Someone may admit to a theft, and they might not think it's a sin. Well, I was hungry, so I took a Snickers bar. If you stole something, confession isn't just admitting you did it. It's acknowledging the wrong in your actions. And we hear a lot this time of year about people who are confessing since it's the Lent season. But for the believer, confession should be daily, at least. And I know I've said this many times before, but I always think it's interesting that the very first one of Martin Luther's famous 95 theses said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, it's an ongoing, constant process whereby we continually repent. We're continually turning away from our flesh and the sin, and we're turning towards Christ all the time. It's not a once and for done. It's not even a once and for day done, possibly. It, it, some of us need it more than that. A famous example of true confession we can find in the, in the example of David. In Psalm 51, 2 through 4, uh, he, had, he is admitting his sin. This is concerning Bathsheba. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The Lord's Prayer implies that confession is a daily activity because the Lord's Prayer is clearly a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily prayer at least. And that prayer also says, forgive us. It's daily. And what happens if we don't confess? Misery. Misery. And David realized that his misery, when he had not yet confessed his sin, was as a result of him not bringing it before the Lord. Psalm 32, 3-5, he said this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He was physically sick. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up, was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then what happens in verse 5? I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Whilst David's sin remained unconfessed, he was miserable. Then he confessed and received forgiveness. Sometimes when people are miserable, it's because they're not in right relationship with the Lord. And that's exactly what John is getting at. If you're going to say you have fellowship with the Lord and with his church, but you're harboring sin unconfessed, you don't have true fellowship. John Calvin said this, Few indeed consider how miserable and wretched is a doubting conscience. That is, 
someone who doesn't feel they're forgiven. Why, why would a Christian not feel like they're forgiven? They haven't confessed it. Because that's all they have to do. And what is confession? Agreeing with God that it's sin. So, so Calvin said, Few indeed consider how miserable and wretched is a doubting conscience, but the truth is hell reigns where there is no peace with God. Let's try to bring all this together. Last week, we learned about how John was concerned about how people would understand that Jesus was really here in the flesh. And he desired his beloved disciples to have fellowship with him and with the Father and with Jesus Christ. And today we see that John again is using the concept of light and dark to contrast between a life defined by righteousness and the life of sin. And he both warns us and encourages us. He warns us that if we're living in sin, that is walking in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and are cleansed from sin. The application is clearly to both individual believers, but also to the community of believers as a whole. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, Here's the tough part of applying this. God is light, and his light is what exposes sin. Are you willing to be exposed? Are we really truly ready to become students of God's word so that we can use the word to examine ourselves? If we're doing Bible study every day and not seeing how we examine ourselves through it, it may be just an exercise. You see, this concept is what is most offensive to people about the gospel. Like Mark mentioned on his Facebook post in Sunday school that connects with this. Now everyone says, no, people are all good, they're all good. And Mark posts a scripture that says, no, they're not. Their heart is wicked and desperately <laughs> deceitful. They're desperately wicked and deceitful. And this is why the gospel is so offensive to people because they don't want to believe that. But we have to agree with God that we sin. There's a reason we need to stay in God's word, many reasons, because those who do not go back to it with regularity can forget what it says. Or the evil one will take what they remember and twist it. I have seen many many examples of this well i went to sunday school when i was a kid and i remember that the bible said this and i'm like that's not what it said at all but that's how their mind twisted it, or the evil one twisted it over time so how can i know if i love jesus if he says the proof of our love is in keeping his commands if i don't even know what he commanded me can i rely on a sermon once a week or the one or two verses in the daily bread. No, those are good starts for a Bible study. As Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, he showed this compassionate concern for unity in the church. And he linked that passionate concern for unity in the church to sanctification. He prayed this, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How are we sanctified? Through his word. His word is truth. And so it is that we must be in the scriptures ourselves. And not merely to be able to show off when we're in Sunday school. Here's what I know. 
not just to be able to examine the problems in the world and say, well, I know what the Bible says about the president or the ex-president or whatever else. No, we must allow God's word to be that sanctifying, cleansing, disinfecting light that pierces through the fog of our own fleshly outlook so that we are not blind to our own sinfulness. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we look into the word with the humility required to allow God to expose us and to make us a little uncomfortable, to root out and cause us a bit of discomfort as we realize how much we need to confess our sins. And then again, perhaps we feel we know it already well enough. Well, perhaps we focus like the teachers of the law in the Bible on the externals instead of the internals. Perhaps we don't have the sin of David, but do we harbor pride in our hearts? Or bitterness? Are we guilty of the sin of feeling superior to others? And do we agree with God that it is sinful? There's a story, this is a true story, of a famous preacher over a century ago who married a nice young Christian lady. At least she always thought so. But after some years hearing her husband preach, and he preached the word with conviction and strength, she realized one day that she had never been truly saved at all. She had never had a true godly sorrow leading to repentance. And if you hear someone give their testimony and you never hear anything about a sorrow over their sins, either they forgot to put that part in or you may rightly wonder is this for real? They don't feel any remorse over their sins. Have they been regenerated by the word? Now, thankfully, that young lady who married that preacher realized her error. And she realized that even growing up in the church and making a confession of faith and having been baptized, that she had never truly been saved with the belief in her heart and the repentance of sin that was a result of godly sorrow. But she did come to faith through the faithful preaching of her husband. Is it possible that there be someone here and now in this very room who have the same experience? It's possible. I plead with you. Hear God's word. This isn't Pastor Jason saying this. I've given you plenty of evidence from God's word, which is the truth, which is like a double-edged sword. And last night, late in the evening, as I walked around the sanctuary praying, I prayed for God's love to find out anyone who may be sitting this morning with a false assurance that's not based on the truth. I prayed that anyone, if, if anyone in any seat this morning must be saved, even if it was someone who's been in the church for many years, that the Holy Spirit would cause such discomfort as to make that person or persons take more seriously than ever their salvation. And I prayed that no seat would be safe from the blazing, disinfecting, sanctifying word of truth this morning. Now, why would I want you to be uncomfortable? Because I love you.
And John loved the church when he wrote this letter. And he urged that we understand God's love, but also he wanted us to know that it is possible to be false. It's possible for people to say they have fellowship with him while they walk in darkness. It may be they walk in darkness and everyone around them sees it and knows it. Or it may be that their darkness is inside with secret sins of the heart, which are the most dangerous ones. These can be sins of pride or lust or bitterness. These sins are also often accompanied by feelings of entitlement. I'm entitled to this sin because I went through this. Recently, the sad news came about one of the most, probably the most famous Christian apologist who died some time ago, not too, bad, too long ago, and now it's been revealed that for many sin years he was, re, he was involved in some serious sin. And it was said that with those he was involved with, as he was asking them to help him in his sin, he said, I need this, I'm so stressed, I go around the world doing all this stuff for Jesus, I need this. He thought he deserved it. It was a shock to so many people. Here's a man that was on videos on stage, and, and if any one of us saw him, and I saw many of his videos over time, he could articulate the truth of Scripture clearly. He seemed to have a gentle and loving way about him, and no one knew about this secret sin. At least that's how it seems. Someone knew. But it's a warning to all of us. We, we must hold ourselves accountable to the word, and we must be accountable to trustworthy believers. There but for the grace of God, go I. May God's Holy Spirit quickly convict us and bring us to repentance for our own sake and for the sake of his church. And that's our second application. If our fellowship is based on whether we walk in the light, and if we have warnings in Scripture about making sure we do not have fellowship with people who call themselves believers but insist on their right to their sin, then how do we deal with that? So the first question we must ask ourselves is whether we personally are walking in the light. That's the first question. And then perhaps we can help others who are struggling. Now, this might have seemed really rough. Maybe the Holy Spirit's doing a work on you. Maybe you're feeling a godly sorrow that will lead to repentance. I pray that that is the case because that's a glorious place to be right as he saves you. Well, this sermon ends with good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It ends with good news for the believer. For the true believer who has indeed experienced a godly sorrow leading to repentance, it ends with good news. And for that pastor's wife I mentioned who realized after many years that she really had not had a saving faith, it took true godly sorrow and humility to admit she needed saving. Can you imagine it? Married to one of the most famous preachers of the time and having to confess, I've really not been saved all these years. Oh, she could have sat in the pew and just said, I am not going to embarrass my husband or my family or myself. It took humility. If pride had won, she may not have, she may not have continued on in faith. But she had the humility to let that godly sorrow bring her to repentance. And so she responded to God's word and his Holy Spirit and found new life.
then it's possible. Even if you've sat for years and you know in your heart now you're not saved. It's not too late as long as you allow God's spirit to break your heart. May God grant to those who still have heart that will hear from him this morning to bring about this godly sorrow leading to repentance for his glory. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the deep love of John, the beloved apostle, the apostle of love. Lord, he cared so deeply for the church and he cared so deeply for the truth. And so, Lord, he was willing to wound because he knew who binds those wounds. Lord, may your Holy Spirit now be powerful in this place. And Lord, may anyone who you are working on resist the hardening of their own heart and allow you to take that heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, as you said in Ezekiel. May it be done for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And we will close the service then, so have a, a good uh, rest of your day, and we'll see you next week about what propitiation means. So say that three times fast. Anyway, you are dismissed. Have a great day.